DiscerningHearts.com presents The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. Joseph Pierce is the director of the Center for Faith and Culture and writer-in-residence at Aquinas College in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a renowned biographer whose works include his own autobiography as well as books on the lives of Father Ho Lang, William Shakespeare, J.R.R. Tolkien, L.R. Belloc, G.K. Chesterton, and numerous others. He's the recipient of an honorary doctorate of higher education from Thomas More College for the Liberal Arts and has also received the Pollock Award for Christian Biography. He is the co-editor of the St. Austin Review and has hosted two series on Shakespeare for EWTN as well as hosting several EWTN productions on J.R.R. Tolkien. The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Joseph, thank you for joining me once again. It's always a great pleasure, Chris. It's a joy to talk about C.S. Lewis. There is so much there that this wonderful man, it just the grace just pours from him, doesn't it? Oh, yes. And you're right. You know, you can never really get enough Lewis to read. And, and I certainly never tire of uh, speaking about him, giving talks on him or writing about him. He's uh He's a genius. He's been also a great gift, not only to his own century, but to the 21st century in which we live. I mean, his, he's probably being read by more people now than at any time. Certainly, he's being read by more people now than uh, during his own lifetime. You know, people talk about a C.S. Lewis industry, and it's not really much of a, an exaggeration to say that because uh, his uh, popularity amongst Catholics and uh, other Christians is, uh, is nothing short of phenomenal. He is really someone who needs to be read. We've talked about this over and over again about the film industry and the making of movies. And when it comes to Lewis, you are so much better off if you've read the book. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, T.S. Eliot said in The Hollow Men, it's a favorite line of his that I like to quote, that between the potency and existence falls the shadow. And this is true, generally speaking, but it's more true than ever in what happens to C.S. Lewis when they try to put him on film. You have to have the potency, the power, and the potential of the original work that Lewis wrote. And then you have this shadow that falls when they actually try to try to make it into a, a movie. And I don't think it's because those, those um, books are beyond being adapted to, to film. I think it's because they're basically being betrayed by the producers and directors of those projects. And this particular book that we're going to talk about, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and its subsequent sequels that were attempted in film, boy, they just took the characters eventually and kind of twisted them. I I hope you didn't burden yourself with watching those. (laughs) I watched The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and was obviously disappointed. And then I I heard so many bad things about Prince Caspian that I, uh, I didn't waste my time on it, I must be honest. Well, enough of that negative. Let's just jump into the, all of the positive and talk about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is part of the, the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, I mean, Lewis achieves absolute astonishing heights in this in, uh, series, The Chronicles of Narnia, which is, of course, seven books, which The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was the first to be written and the seven in chronological sequence. In the, insofar as these are children's books on one level, and yet there are, there's profound theology, profound mysticism, profound philosophy uh, rooted 
in the stories so that you can read them and reread them. I didn't read the Chronicles of Narnia until I was an adult for the first time. I was not a Christian when I was a, when I was a young man and had no real knowledge of Lewis and no real desire to read him. But obviously on my, my approach to, to conversion, I, I, I discovered C.S. Lewis and read the Chronicles of Narnia when I was in my 20s and uh, fell in love with them. So I fell in love with them as an adult. And that's, I think, important because, you know, we, we, we're talking about the, the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe here in a, in a series of talks that, we, that we're doing together that are mostly about books that everybody would consider to be so-called adult works of literature. Well, this is also an adult work of literature. It just happens to be an adult work of literature that children can also enjoy. And there's a great work of genius in achieving both things at the same time. And, he, and you know, only the greatest storytellers succeed in that. And Lewis is one of the greatest storytellers. The first time I came across this work was, believe it or not, in the fifth grade when I had Mrs. Harper read it to us in our secular public school classroom. Had no idea of its Christian connotations, but as you said, I, I, I went back and reread them all as an adult and just was blown away. I mean, the story that captured me as a child, as you said, was one that really penetrated me as an adult. Yeah, there are certainly sort of some of the deeper elements of the Chronicles of Narnia that would be lost, quite frankly, on children. I'm actually rereading the Chronicles of Narnia now with my daughter. Mm. And first time I've had the, the joy of actually reading them with a child. And she's thoroughly enjoying them, actually, more than I thought, because I thought perhaps I was jumping the gun and reading them to her a little bit too early. But she certainly isn't getting a lot of the, the, the deeper level of it. And, and that's absolutely fine, because, again, a great work of literature, she'll get from it many, many good things. She's certainly fallen in love with Aslan, which is a very, very healthy reaction. And she loves Aslan, and but she doesn't get some of the deeper theology and philosophy, but that doesn't matter. The, read this book and reread this book, and those deeper levels, deeper layers of meaning become apparent with each subsequent reading. Once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. Those are four souls who we will watch change and transform, some in good ways, and some, well, not so much. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the name Lucy, she's the youngest, and she's the one that sees uh, most clearly through the eyes of faith, and she's rewarded accordingly, not just in the line in which the world opened in, in some of the later works. And of course, the word Lucy comes from the Latin lux for light. Saint Lucy, uh, again, is uh, is uh, the, the saint for the blind. So she sees, and then she sees because of her innocence and because of her faith. And I think there's a, there's a great lesson there. Peter, of course, the eldest, is also appropriately and symbolically named. He's the one who has the authority. And of course, this uh, has to resonate with the words of Christ in Scripture when he bestows the keys of the kingdom upon Saint Peter and gives him authority over those keys and to, to bind on earth those that we bound in heaven, etc. So again, symbolic names in the midst of all this. One who would seem to be, I don't want to call him a troublemaker, but seems to get everybody in trouble, would be Edmund. Yes, I mean, uh, Edmund is quite clearly, and let's not make no bones about it, the Judas figure in the story. The Lion, the Witch and Wardrobe, in many ways, of course, is a reenactment of, of, of the Passion of Christ. That's the, the key moment to which the whole book leads is towards the, the Aslan's death and subsequent resurrection. And bearing in mind that that's the key, should we say, biblical signifier 
And Edmund's role in it is, of course, the Judas figure. He's the one that betrays not just his friends, but his own family, his brothers and sisters, to the White Witch, who, again, is obviously symbolic of the presence of Satan. You know, it's always winter. It's never spring. It's never Christmas because she's basically cast her shadow and her cold over the world. Before we dive in even further, where is C.S. Lewis at this point in his life that he would use this type of storytelling to tell such a very deep tale? Yeah, well, these these books uh, came out after the Second World War in the late 40s and early 50s. So they're in the later parts of his life, amongst his later works. He's very mature as a writer at this time. He's obviously seen the success of Tolkien's The Hobbit as a children's book. He's experienced the reading of The Lord of the Rings, which is not a children's book. But Tolkien and Lewis spoke about the need to get beyond, get past those watchful dragons. That, you know, Lewis and Tolkien were aware that they were living in a secular culture, a secular fundamentalist culture that was very hostile to Christianity, would, uh, shall we say, put their guard up as soon as uh, anything is overtly Christian. So you get round that by getting past those watchful dragons by, if you like, as uh, to use um, the, the phrase of Lewis, that it's possible to smuggle theology under cover of romance. And that's what he's doing in the Chronicles of Narnia. He's smuggling theology under cover of romance. And we might find as as believing Christians the, the allegorical dimension of Chronicles of Narnia obvious. And indeed, it, it is much more obvious than it is in, for instance, Lord of the Rings, where it's more subtle. But nonetheless, the ignorance of theology by the modern world is such that many, many people read the Chronicles of Narnia without realizing the Christian significance of, of, of what they're reading. We live in a very, very ignorant age theologically. And so this is a way that, that Lewis can, if you like, communicate with the world beyond the walls of the church, the world outside in the dark, as Hilaire Belloc would say, and bring the light of the gospel to them. Following a light is Lucy. She ventures into, so many of us are familiar with the story. I, I hope I don't spoil things, but I mean, she enters into the wardrobe. And just keeps following, just keeps going. The miracle is presented to the eyes of faith. And of course, that when she returns, she's not believed. But that doesn't stop her for one moment. I mean, she bursts into tears. She's upset. But she knows that what she's seen is, is true and real. She has the, the, the eyes of faith. And she's not going to be reasoned out of that, particularly when the reason is irrational because it goes against the evidence of her own senses. She's experienced Narnia. She's felt the cold. She's felt the snow. She's uh, had tea with uh, Mr. Tumnus. I mean, she knows the place exists. And there are no amount of, we say, skeptical rationalization is going to reason her out of what she's, she knows to be true through the evidence of her own eyes. Edmund would take his journey through the wardrobe as well. And is he set up, essentially? I mean, this poor Edmund, the everyman, he, he, he travels through that wardrobe, ends up in in the land, and unlike Lucy, encounters the White Witch. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the tricky thing, of course, in these works is, is to detect the hand of providence. In other words, what is the role of God, or the, if, you, if you want to prefer the terminology of Narnia, the role of Aslan in all this, to what extent was Lucy meant to be the one that originally saw Narnia, the one who has the, the innocent eyes of faith, but to what extent, uh, if you like, was Edmund also meant to find Narnia and fill his own role as a Judas figure? I mean, Christ 
chose Judas, obviously knowing that Judas would betray him, because he doesn't force Judas to betray him. It's not a question of uh, overriding Judas's free will. And Edmund's basically, Edmund's problems are rooted in problems he has already. That's the, that's the point. He is prideful. He's resentful of, uh, of his siblings, particularly Peter, his older brother. He's quite happy in his, in, in his own morose pride to lie. Um, so he already has all the ingredients necessary to make a, a mess of things. When, if you like, Aslan allows him to uh, to go into Narnia and indeed make the mess that his own sinful predisposition makes likely. When we talk about the the characters too of Peter and Susan, their role in the story is still essential, even though it does seem to pivot on the actions of Lucy and Edmund. Yes, very much so. Um, and and again, you know, largely the parallels here is the exaltation of the humble is seeing through the eyes of the child. It's sort of parallel with Tolkien's use of the hobbits in The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. You know, it's, it's the small and the so-called insignificant and the powerless and those that aren't necessarily taken seriously who really are the catalysts for the movement of grace within the story. They would eventually go, all four of them, through the wardrobe together, and they set out on this this great adventure encountering characters who, though in animal form I and mean creation form, they exhort a type of virtue that compelling for the characters. Everybody seems to be making choices. Yeah, you know, choices, of course, are absolutely essential. And what Lewis is doing here is merely revisiting as an act of, I suppose you could say self-indulgent, but certainly a harmless and ultimately virtuous one, of revisiting sort of the worlds he invented as a child animal land, talking animals. So he, he does this as an adult. But of all of these creatures are in some degree anthropomorphous. I mean, they, they really are human in their, their reason, their capacity to love, their capacity to sin, their capacity for heroic virtue. So if you like, they are persons, in other words, humans in animal shape. The, 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 the animal is really largely the accidental quality philosophically speaking the essential quality is is the human in them so we're talking about you know the Tolkien said of, of fairy stories they hold up a mirror to man and we can look at characters in, in Narnia who are animals or fauns or creatures that are of Lewis's imagination such as Puddle Glum in, in the silver chair but we are in all of these cases seeing mirrors of ourselves. That use of the mythological figures in the writings in this particular stories. Yes, these are children's stories, but those same type of characters are have always spoken even to the adult heart. They're talking about our common experience as human beings in a, in a fallen cosmos of the necessity for virtue, of the temptation to sin, of the presence of evil, of the overarching presence of God and his grace, which is made available for those who seek it. I mean, these are, these are all analogs and parallels to the world in which we live. So clearly those who have eyes to see, regardless of their age, can get from these stories a great deal of very, very valuable truth and indeed moral lessons. The battle then would be between Aslan, the lion, and the white queen. And the children by their choices set off the battle and the need for the sacrifice and again here we are we make our choices don't we 
Yeah, and there are consequences uh, to choices, and it's not only ourselves that suffer. It, it certainly is true that if we live a life of sin, we will suffer ourselves. Again, the, the perfect uh, image of that, I keep mentioning Lewis's great friend, uh, Tolkien, but the great, the, the great image of how, how sin harms ourself is the, is the character of Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. But sin also harms others, and not just other sinners, sin also harms the innocent. There are innocent victims to our own evil choices, and that is uh, one of the, uh, the harshest consequences of sin. And of course, the ultimate innocent victim of sin is God himself, is Christ, and Aslan is uh, the image and figure of Christ in Narnia. So the, uh, the white witch knows that Edmund has forfeited uh, his right to life, if you like, uh, and is made over to her as a traitor. He belongs to her, the satanic figure, because of his mortal sin, if you like. That is deep magic that, that she says to, to Aslan. The deep magic basically means that Edmund is hers. He belongs to her, and it, that can only be denied to her by breaking the essential fabric of the cosmos, breaking the laws of the cosmos, the deep magic from the beginning of time. Of course, what she doesn't understand is the deeper magic from before the dawn of time, uh, which is that if an innocent victim voluntarily takes the place of the sinner, then death itself is reversed. Resurrection is brought into being. There is a, a life that transcends and defeats death and this deeper magic from before the dawn of time is beyond the ken, beyond the understanding of the white witch. Just as, of course, the life, the incarnation, life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was beyond the ken, beyond the understanding of Satan. Well, in that, that moment, uh, I'll never forget, even with that young mind of mine, uh, hearing the sacrifice that Aslan would made and the fact that he actually... He dies. I'm, I mean, I think that's the beauty of Lewis is he can present this even to a child's understanding of the gruesomeness, the finality of death, but yet the triumph of love and mercy. Absolutely. Yeah, and I know I said I read this fairly recently to our, our daughter. You know, she just assumed that Aslan was pretending to, to be dead and or sleeping, or it was a trick, or or that or that something would stop the queen from from actually killing him, and and was uh, dumbfounded when you know Aslan was actually killed. But of course, this is the the whole beauty and majesty of Lewis's storytelling. This is the catastrophe. This is the the moment of of such awful reality that, if you like, breaks our our heart, makes us nonplussed as how could this be allowed to happen? How could anybody? you know, allow an innocent victim to die in this way. And of course, without any inkling of the resurrection to follow, we have this catastrophe. But then the resurrection itself is, is what Tolkien called the eucatastrophe, the, the sudden joyous turn in the story, completely unexpected, that transforms everything that goes before it, everything that comes after it, and indeed transforms their very understanding, not only of the story that we're reading, but the story of which we're part, the story of history, the story of the, of the life uh, we're, we're living within that story. It is a, a spectacular moment, really, too, that in the transformation of Edmund, that 
unlike Judas, which we don't know, there, you know, theologians could have all speculate back and forth in the status of Judas's state. Edmund receives mercy. Absolutely. And one of, the, one of the wonders of true story as opposed to a formal allegory is that you can have ingredients uh, of certain characters in the characters of the story. So in other words, that aspects of a certain character can remind us of someone else. So in again, I've returned to the Lord of the Rings because it's just an obvious uh, example. In the Lord of the Rings, various characters remind us of Christ without ever being Christ at all times. We think of Aragorn's kingship, Gandalf's death, resurrection, and transfiguration, Frodo's role as the ring bearer, i.e. cross bearer. So the various aspects of various characters that remind us of Christ, but none of them are a formal representation of Christ at all times. Now, Aslan is much less subtle than that, and Aslan, it can be said, is the Christ of Narnia. So he's always going to be the Christ. But Edmund, on the other hand, is very similar to those characters I've just mentioned from the Lord of the Rings. He reminds us of Judas in his betrayal of uh, his own brothers and sisters, or own brother and sisters, his siblings, uh, but also, of course, in his betrayal of Aslan, uh, the consequences of his sin leading to Aslan's death. But, you know, in a broader sense, Edmund's not just the the person who reminds us of Judas in his act of treachery, he's also someone who reminds us of us. I mean, all of us, if you like, have been mm-hmm. Judases. All of us have betrayed Christ and betrayed each other in sin and betrayed ourselves in sin. Sin ultimately is a betrayal of ourselves, our neighbor, and our God. And, we, and we're all sinners. So in that sense, Edmund is an everyman figure, as well as, as well as being in his role as traitor that leads to Aslan's crucifixion, a Judas figure. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, did Lewis foresee a, the Chronicles, or was he thinking this was a standalone when he originally wrote it? I think the Chronicles of Narnia grew in the telling. I don't think he certainly didn't have sort of all seven books in mind, um, but, but I think he had the possibility of other books in mind when he wrote it. But, you know, that's why, this, that's why The Magician's Nephew, was, which was written, I think, was the sixth out of the seventh seven to be written. Uh, is the first chronologically that he's sort of uh, making things work as they go along, explainer explaining away the, the presence of, for instance, the lamppost and how was that, how would a lamppost get into Narnia, for instance, sticking in the middle of a uh, of a forest? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> I wish it must have been puzzling people and it probably was mentioned to Lewis. So you know he goes back and gives us the creation story of Narnia and and in that story we're told how the how the lamppost ends up coming from our world into, into Narnia. So, no, I think as in, as in all things, the story grew in the telling. So he didn't have, J.K. Rowling claims to have had all of the, uh, the seven uh, Harry Potter books in mind, obviously and clearly not in all details, but mm-hmm. in mind before she started the series. But I don't think that was the case with Lewis. I think Lewis allowed the thing to grow in his imagination, and that's exactly what it did over a period of several years. It is interesting because I've I've mentioned that the other two siblings, Peter and Susan, you know, Susan is very quizzical, or is she a skeptic? I'm not sure. Ultimately, within the perspective of the entire chronicle, she is because she is the one in the end that grows up and and, and even sort of doubts whether Narnia ever, ever existed, you know, whether it was all just a dream. So uh, yes, she does. She does represent sort of modern skepticism and utilitarianism you know something is really valuable because it's useful 
not because it's necessarily just because it's good or beautiful. And certainly the sort of, say, unhealthy skepticism and pessimism of the modern. It's there, if you like, in embryonic form in The Lion, the Witch and Wardrobe, but it becomes much more apparent in the later books. Even Peter, to a certain extent, is not as elevated in that pouring out of grace as you seem to see it in the lives of the pure one, Lucy, who can see, and even can see Aslan when no one else can, and and Edmund, who is the repentant sinner. It's almost like they're the John and Mary Magdalene standing, but reverse, at the at the foot of the cross. I, I like that an analogy between Edmund and Lucy and Mary Magdalene and John the Evangelist uh, at the Passion. I think that's a extremely perceptive. I think that Peter, the difference between Peter, should we say, and, and Lucy, is that Peter is the the authority, and the authority is that which should be obeyed. Indeed, not, not to obey it uh, is itself uh, a sin, uh, as long as, of course, as the authority is, uh, is, is behaving in an orthodox fashion. So Peter is the vision of authority, but Lucy is the vision of sanctity, and it doesn't necessarily follow that the one with authority is a saint, although it does follow that the one who's a saint follows authority. So mm-hmm. In other words, that the, the, the Peter's authority is not questioned, uh, is by Edmund, of course, but not within the context of the wider story. He is the eldest. He is given preeminent position, as is his right, and therefore he is the authentic, genuine authority. But Lucy is true to that authority while transcending it uh, in a sanctity which Peter doesn't possess, not to the same degree. I absolutely love the image of Joseph Pierce sitting on the couch with his young daughter reading this uh, wonderful story to her in and, and, and the telling. And this is just one of those. I mean, I happen to have the, the Chronicles in a big, glorious, oversized book, which I will sit down with Coco sometimes. And I know that sounds rather strange, but, but on a winter's day to sit down and, and read this in all of its glory. It is such a delight. I, I, I feel bad for people who would think, oh, that seems like such a child story. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, there's a difference between being childlike and being childish. And uh, the one who enjoys the Chronicles of Narnia is childlike and is, on, and is, is, is pointing to heaven. And the one who refuses to read the Chronicles of Narnia because it's, it's not a grown-up book, it's a book for kids, is childish and is not looking towards heaven. So uh, I'd much rather be childlike and see the Chronicles of Narnia with childlike eyes, with my daughter's childlike eyes, than to be childish and to think that perhaps we should be reading something which is so-called grown-up. Oh, and how blessed we are to have us guiding through this these this wonderful land and then to have C.S. Lewis. Words do escape one when one really wants to try to encapsulate the genius of C.S. Lewis. But he wrote, you know, works of non-fiction where he encapsulates the deepest philosophy and theology in terms that everybody uh, anybody can understand. He's he's even better than, than Chesterton at that in mere Christianity and in miracles and the problem of pain. But he also ha- is a great storyteller. Whether it's whether it's uh, you know his space trilogy where his audience is is are ostensibly only adults because children would not understand or enjoy, uh, or the Chronicles of Narnia where his audience are children of all ages because anyone that can see with the eyes of a child and with the wisdom and innocence of a child, can enjoy the Chronicles of Narnia. Lewis is a, is a genius who can write in many forms, many genres, many media, and the world is, is much, much, much wealthier and healthier because of that. Final thoughts? Well, only that uh, I would certainly 
encourage everybody to read the Chronicles of Narnia. Don't wait until you have a five-year-old to, mm. to, to, to read it. And if you haven't read them before, go out and read them. You won't be disappointed and you will get a, a great deal of uh, great wisdom coming from them in terms of theology and philosophy and just good, healthy Christian morality. And if you have read them before, then please don't feel that you've done it. Go back and read them again. Excellent advice. Thank you so much, Joseph Pierce. My pleasure as always, Chris. God bless you. You've been listening to Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce.